Welcome to the new season of VMP Anthology. I'm your host, Torre, and as you know by now, this season of VMP Anthology centers around one of the most important, iconic figures in the history of jazz, the one and only Herbie Hancock. This season of the podcast accompanies an 8LP box set that was curated by Mr. Hancock and released by Vinyl Me Please covering Herbie's voyage from young upstart to titan of jazz. This season of the podcast VMP Anthology will operate a little bit differently. Each episode will hear memories of two albums in the box set from Herbie himself and then hear additional thoughts from those who know him best, his artistic collaborators. I interviewed Herbie and eight other people about his music and each episode I'll let you know who you'll hear from and let them take it away. Got it? This first episode introduces some of the folks we'll hear from this season, sharing their thoughts on Herbie's artistry, what makes him special, and why he's just such a joy to work with. We start with Wayne Shorter, Larry Klein, and Ron Carter, and hear from Bernie Grunman, who remastered this box set, as well as Robert Glasper and Corinne Bailey Ray. Without further ado... It's the story of Herbie Hancock. This is Wayne Shorter. Well, actually, when Herbie and I met, uh, it was in New York, and he was doing a, a record date with uh, Donald Byrd. It had something to do with the title... Not so much the title, but something like Flight or something like that. But I heard about Herbie from some of the guys in New York, and it was like Miles Davis. They they were talking about how did Miles, how did he find these special pianists? Because, you know, Miles was like a rhythm section guy. He always wanted a, a great pianist, bass player, and drummer. And they said, how did they find these guys, man? There's this guy from Chicago named Herbie Hancock, Miles got him. So yeah. And I, I just heard about when Herbie got to New York, I was in New York and uh, somebody called me to see if I could be on the record with Donald Bird and then this new pianist, Herbie Hancock. And I remember we met in the studio and, I, and it was right away, every, everybody, kind of knew each other. We knew it was unspoken, but this, this kind of mission that we kind of knew we were on a, a mission. I, I got some news about that Herbie had played a classical concert when he was about 13, 14 or 15 with an orchestra. And then, then he got into jazz, you know. I don't think it was difficult for him to get in there because right away, Miles would choose somebody to play with him who had a lot of a wide range of uh, knowledge in music, the pianist, you know, 
in Miles's house, Miles had scores, those small scores of different kinds of music, Shostakovich and, and all these guys, not just Beethoven, but a whole lot of, you know, to have a discussion with Miles as a pianist and talking about music and what you're going to play and things like that, you would have to be able to discuss, not, not stay in one area. And so Miles's interest in Herbie transcended just him playing bebop, a bebop piano player. So and I knew that I was finding out more about Miles myself. And I, I was not with Miles when Herbie and I met. I was uh, with uh, the Jazz Messengers at that time. And uh, me and Lee Morgan hanging out together. <laughs> We called him Mogi, me and Mogi, and uh, my man, Bobby Timmons. So the discussion was always about who's new in town, who's, and whoever Miles got to play the piano, because there's a lot of guys standing in the line. They wanted to get that gig. And here's his, hey, Miles, when he got on the telephone, way over to Chicago, got somebody from Chicago, and all these cats in New York, a lot of them can, can play. But who is Herbie? Who is this Herbie Hancock? So when I saw Herbie, I said, wow, he looked very studious. He had a suit tie and suit and everything. And but when we started talking back back and forth and Donald Bird and all that, I kind of knew that Herbie liked Donald Bird as, as a musician and trumpet player and up here. Later on, I found out that Donald Bird was also an uh, Air Force pilot, and some other, other musicians did that too. I think that Percy Heath was a Tuskegee Airman, and then there's a drummer too. But then I, I knew that as Herbie kept talking, he didn't talk a lot, but when maybe he said something, I saw that his mind went to mechanics, like engineering. From that time on, whenever I saw him, he was always fidgeting with some, some wires down on his knees on the floor, trying to get some socket together for, for something, an extension cord that led to something else. <laughs> and because uh, later on, Herbie told me he couldn't make up his mind whether to go into engineering or stay in music. wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your friend Herbie Hancock. How is he as a musician? Is he okay? Yeah, he's all right. He, you know what? He tries. He tries, and he and I don't know about longevity. You know, I mean, you know, he's a, he's a good kid, though. He's getting you know, better. I, <laughs> he's getting better all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you work with him. What is, you know? What is it like to work with him? He's one of the great geniuses of the century oh my god yes i mean i've known herbie now let's see i first actually met him i think i was in college still he used to just have people come over and play 
right? And and if you heard about some young guy who who was playing somewhere, he'd say, man, come over. And that guy would say, you know, I know this bass player, you know, like, you know, I'll bring him over, you know. But anyhow, so that was the first time I met him. But I've been friends with him since, I guess, now for about 30 years or so. And You got invited to one of these jam sessions at his house? Yeah, yeah. Tell me that story. How'd that, how'd that happen? How did it go? It was with a couple of friends of mine, uh, one of whom I was going to music school with at USC. It was a uh, community schools, which was a mu- music school in L.A., for me, it was a godsend, right? And so when I started going there, I met a guy named Billy Childs and, and Billy uh, became my best friend because we were, it was a pretty classically oriented program, but we were the two jazz uh, heads in the, in the place at that time. Plenty of other people, Patrice Russian, a lot of other people have come through that school. And it eventually became the Coburn School. So we um, became best friends. And so we used to play with a lot of different people. And so Billy and a drummer named Ricky Simmons, who I knew at the time and Billy knew at the time, uh, got invited. In fact, I think it was maybe Ricky who got invited to go over to Herbie's house. He was in the same house that he lives in now and um, go up and play. And so we did. And it was lovely, and and uh, we had a blast. And he was a wonderful, warm, generous host, as he always has been, and and still is. And uh, was so generous in, in just sitting down and playing and talking with us. And so that is the first, my first meeting with him. And then I came to know him later by playing with him. And and actually, actually, it ended up uh, that. The next phase of knowing him came through my ex-wife, Joni Mitchell. And, and, and Joni, of course, was very good friends with Herbie. And they were sort of, uh, you know, musical compadres. And, and, and so through her, I got to know Herbie better and better and, and, um, and also came to know Wayne Shorter. And they, they both have had... I would say a, a very profound effect on me as well, as well as being wonderful friends and people that I just uh, are like family to me and, and that who I really love. They both have had a profound influence on my life. I think, you know, just watching them and seeing the way that they deal with the world and, and how that kind of ties in with the way they function musically and and also just being able to absorb so much musical wisdom just from just from playing and talking with them which is is all part of the same fabric you know because we all are human beings who are really pretty consumed by music and and where that's the kind of the driving wheel in in our lives so I, I can't even quantify how big an effect he's had on me um, in every way. And, I, and, uh, and that goes for Wayne as well. Can you talk about what you've learned from him uh, musically, either from talking or just watching or just listening? I would say that both of them, but Herbie, Herbie specifically, has never been content to 
sit still creatively, musically, or artistically. And, uh, and, and I think that that philosophy or that uh, way of walking through life and living your life as a, as a musician and for me as a record producer, as a songwriter, that is something that when I first came to know Herbie, I was young enough where that, that idea hadn't really, the, the time for it to come to me hadn't really arrived yet, you know? And so, so seeing the, these people like he and Wayne, I had already played with Freddie Hubbard and, and Joe Henderson and, and seeing the way that they, the way that their minds and their creative mechanism worked, it was a life-changing thing and it changed everything that I do and, and changed everything that I would come to do and how I approached making music and playing music and everything. That, that kind of restlessness and that kind of strong impulse toward, toward following, following your instinct and following your muse and not getting sidetracked by too much outside static that comes in, in from various places and, and just staying true to your, you know, where the wind is blowing you. I mean, that definitely feels true if you look at the breadth of his career. Yeah. He's gone from, you know, traditional jazz to whatever future shock is and yeah. different places and just a desire to just, just try new things. Yeah, and, and, and I, think that, I think that both he and Wayne learned that from Miles in the time that I've spent talking to both of them, of course, Miles comes up all the time and they tell stories and quote Miles. And, and uh, I, I met Miles a couple of times, but never really got to know him or play with him. But that seed of not being satisfied to just follow the stream of, of things aesthetically but to, you know, that that was not enough. It wasn't enough to be correct or to be, or to fit in with, with a genre or to, or to just do something that, that sort of worked well in a, any sort of area of the arts. That was doing nothing, you know, and, and they got that from Miles. And, and it's a profound idea, that, that feeling. And, and, and if you carry that, and really let that seat sink into you deeply, it really, um, it affects everything that you do. You know, that you get no points for being correct. Did you know who he was before you met him? Did you hear of him first or did you meet him first? Because my first, my, the last hearing of him was probably on the radio in New York at the time, in the early 60s. There was a great radio station system in New York and uh, played a lot of music all the time, you know. 
and I'm sure I've never heard a record that he was on not knowing who it was because the radio was, was the way we heard records at the time. We had no record player. The, the shops were cut out of our basic financial reach, you know. Uh, my first time meeting him was with the Miles Davis band. So tell me about meeting him uh, with the Miles band. Again? Tell me about the moment. Tell me about the day you met him. A kind of rehearsal at Miles' house. For the first two minutes, he was there playing with the band, and he disappeared. And as it turns out, uh, um, later information we all kind of got a hold of, that he was upstairs actually listening to the band. You know, that's the, uh, actually, I went out with Miles before I heard he joined the band with a sextet. They went to a West Coast tour for six weeks when the band really started to break up. Uh, and the band was Hal Mirren playing piano at the time. And, and uh, the band did a West Coast tour, and when the West Coast tour ended, uh, George and I went to California with Miles Dogman to do the first half of uh, Seven Steps to Heaven with Victor Feldman. Then we returned to, when we got back to New York, then they hired Herbie and Tony, so that's why our first real musical greeting was after this, after this tour. Tell me about your impressions of Herbie as a musician and as a player. Do two things, I think. I would invite all the piano players who like the way he plays to come to a sound check. And I'd like them to hear how he warms up, what kind of skill level he has when he warms up, how he plays the piano very well, how he uses the pedals. And secondly, I'd invite them to uh, a gig where they can really sit near Herbie and watch how Herbie does not mind stopping his thought for nothing on the bandstand seems more important and more necessary at that time. If I can go to one of our records we made communally to point that out, I made a record with Neil Jackson called uh, with, with uh, Freddie Hubbard. And the one of the song titles is uh, SKJ's of Blues. And uh, on, her, on, on Freddie Hubbard's second, going to the second course, I started a bass line, seemingly from out of nowhere. And that's it's like he plays a five courses of blues. Well, on the fourth chorus, Herbie plays the same idea, starting in the same place, basically, four courses later. And, and for a person of that talent level and skill level to be able to stop their concept, which is very valid and very necessary, to pick up an idea that he heard four courses later from, of all people, the bass player, tells you how, how open Herbie is to influences that not only affect him at the moment, they can use four moments later. I mean, I think of him as just sort of an intellectual um, in terms of this music, just really, just so brilliant. Um, and yet also deeply soulful. Is that is that how you would see it? Uh, no, I mean, uh, Herbie's my friend. Yeah. And that kind of supersedes all the other descriptions people have of him for me to have to have, you know. I'm, I'm used to having people assume that my relationship is different than what they would hope it would be or what they're, it's rumored to be or what they would imagine these two people of this talent level would have. Herbie's my friend. It's on top of everything else. How do I feel about Herbie? He's my dear friend. And the next four lines are all blank. All blank. That's enough for me, you know. I understand he's a, he's a very religious person, that he's never insisted that I join in his religion. He understands my, I think, my determination 
to play good every night. And some awfully difficult circumstances that at some point we've shared, some that we haven't shared. And I think a friend like Herbie understands those, those uh, emotional highs and lows that we share. It all just grew out of the fact that it, at that time in the mid-60s, when I got to Hollywood in 66, that's when, in a way, I was like starting a new thing in some ways, uh, manipulating the sound in mastering, so it became a creative part of the process. Before that, it wasn't, but it, the name is there, Mastering Engineer. So the Mastering Engineer now includes maybe making a master that's the product the final master that is used to manufacture everything that's mass produced so we make that but we do a lot of things in between sometimes <laughs> so and that's that's uh, and particularly difficult uh, in what we're talking about today is Herbie Hancock uh, the particular thing that's important about anything like that is like uh, these are like albums that uh, over a period of time have different mixers, different uh, mastering engineers, different whatever, you name it. So, and it's a cross section of a lot of the work that he's done all through the years. And I've done a lot of work for him. A lot of these things, I get these ma old master tapes and I look in there, my notes are in there, you know, from way back. <laughs> and even when the, uh, some of these, when, when he started to get more uh, commercial or pop oriented, I, it was very nostalgic for me because I had forgotten all about a lot of these albums. So I'm putting them up and listening to them and I say, gee, you know, pretty good. In, in fact, in those days, there really wasn't probably as much production in a way or gimmickry. And Herbie was good at that. I mean, Herbie, I mean, well, let, let's face it, you know, like he's one of those rare people that only comes along now and then. And I mean, he can do everything, you know? So, I mean, he can, put together all this stuff, even pop-oriented stuff or jazz stuff. I mean, when I think back, I think like uh, the Miles Davis album, uh, Seven Steps to Heaven. I mean, you know, Herbie's on that. Herbie Hancock's on that. That's not on the box set, but it's just, you know, his his bebop ability is way is, as high as it gets. Well, let's uh, talk, about, talk about his music and his ability as a musician and what you like about his music. The thing about him is, it has a certain kind of depth to it. You know, anything that's done well uh, doesn't just sit there and show off like your virtuosity. You know, say you can play fast, say you can do all kinds of little uh, things, almost like a circus act. The audience really gets impressed with that. But that's not really where it's at. What's where it's really at is to tell a, an emotional story that has a certain kind of continuity. You don't just do little vignettes of flashy things. The best uh, musicians and the best players are the ones that tell an emotional story that has a certain kind of continuity where one thing relates to the other as it moves along and it, it expands and, and expands out. So Herbie's great. I mean, you learn that in bebop. It's got to be that way or else it's not good bebop. 
So, I mean, he had the, the groundwork for all the stuff that came after that, that was somewhat pop oriented, but it still had all of this interesting kind of detail that wasn't gimmickry, but it had a lot of uh, development that took you on a nice ride that had a certain kind of continuity, just like in a bebop jazz solo. I mean, it's hard to play bebop. I mean, you really have to know what you're doing. You have to really know that tune. If you don't know that tune, you won't really hear that tune when you're not hearing the tune. Robert Glasper. Tell me about your musical relationship with Herbie Hancock. Well, he stole all of his stuff from me. Let's just start with that. <laughs> Let's start with that. He stole all his ideas, everything he ever did. He stole it from me, even in the 60s. You know what I mean? Even when I wasn't here, he just felt I was going to be here. My spiritual, my spirit was ahead of its time. You know what I mean? So Herbie took all this, stole it from me. But. <laughs> Man, I think, luckily, I liked Herbie in high school. You know what I mean? But I was finding out a bunch of things. I was finding out all the piano players and who's what and where's what and, you know, boom, 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 boom. I found Herbie when I got to college. When I got to the new school in 1997, that's when I went on my Herbie, like, binge. And... I started, and it wasn't even the electric stuff yet. It was just the acoustic stuff. That's when I started really, really, really getting to Herbie in, in college. Cause I actually even had a Herbie Hancock course. There was a Herbie Hancock course at my college. Because of that also, I had to learn all this Herbie stuff. I was like, oh man. That's when I started falling in love with his writing composition. Because there's a few different aspects when, to me when it comes to an artist. A lot of, a lot of artists are not composers. Not really, you know what I mean? Sometimes you're just a great jazz musician, but that doesn't mean you're a great composer. And I know great composers that are not great musicians, you know? <laughs> and Herbie has them both. And then he also has foresight, and he's also innovative, and he also stays with the times. So do you know who turned me on to Electric Herbie? Who? Dilla. Oh, wow. Jay Dilla. Was he, he was a big Herbie Hancock fan. Jay Dilla was a big Herbie Hancock fan, sampled Mad Herbie stuff. So I was at Jay Dilla's house in 1998 working with Bilal. Me and Bilal flew down. When Bilal first got signed to Interscope Record, we were in college. And uh, our second year of college, Bilal got signed, dropped out of school. And the first person they had Bilal work with was Jay Dilla. And I was like, I'm going. So <laughs> we flew down to Detroit. And we worked with Dilla for about a week and a half or two weeks. And he's the first person to show me Sunlight, his Herbie record, Sunlight. And that's where he got a lot of his samples from. Get This Money, a bunch of different things from that album. Um, and that's when I was like, oh, man, like, I love this joint. He was like, oh, man, you got to check out. This. And he started bringing out all the joints. What makes him a great artist? What makes him a great composer? Herbie's a great artist because he's always been with the times and changed with the times, you know, not to the, to the point of losing himself. 
you know, a lot of artists try to change with the times and lose the authentic self and it's whack and it sounds weird and it's, you don't believe it. You know what I mean? Herbie is like a master at going with the times. And he learned also, he learned a lot of that from Miles. Herbie told me that, you know what I mean? He learned a lot of that from Miles too. Like, you know, Miles always got the young cats of the time, of the era, you know, because they had their ear to the street. They knew what was, what was, what was coming up, what was new, you know? And Herbie's like that. Herbie's like that now, you know, and he always was checking the pulse of the streets and checking the pulse of what's happening in the world, what's on, what's on the brink of being new things, you know? That's why he was on the brink of, that's why he's one of the first people to win an award for hip hop, you know what I mean? For Rocket. So that makes him a great artist. What makes him a great composer? Um, that's just a gift. I have no idea. <laughs> Well, I mean, from your from your perspective in terms of analyzing him as a composer, what's so great? What I like about Herbie is that he he doesn't care. He's very free. So he cares, but he doesn't care. There's, there's, there's the two, there's the double-edged sword to that. He, he cares about staying current, but he doesn't care about how he does it. He wants to do it how he wants to do it. That's why nothing he does is 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 cheesy. You know what I mean? Like it's not pretentious or anything like that. So so it's kind of it's kind of both. And he's able to always stay himself while embarking on the next thing that's, you know, far from what he just did. Ben Bailey Ray. I feel like I've encountered Herbie just through osmosis. My dad was a big funk and soul and jazz collector. And um, I heard his music as a child. And then when I was younger, I worked in a jazz and soul club when I was at university. And I remember just feeling this incredible presence of, of Herbie's music and hearing it through other people's interpretations as well, because I was around a lot of people who were studying at the music college. And so people who were Herbie fans would say, oh, you've got to listen to this record. You've got to listen to that record. And, you know, people who love Herbie as kind of straight ahead and hip and, you know, devilishly handsome. And then people who loved Herbie as kind of cosmic. And then people who loved Herbie as as like the king of funk, you know, and be like, oh, I want him to do all this funk stuff. And there'd be other people who'd be like, oh, I want him to do all this straight ahead stuff. And, oh, I want him to do this cosmic stuff. I, I felt like he was almost several... Herbie Hancock's, you know, so getting into his music was like getting into sort of eight different characters or something. And, and, um, and that's what I think is so inspiring about him, that he seems to have no limits, no limitations in, in how he approaches music um, and how, how he takes something classical and classical form like the piano, but then he'll take the world of synthesizers. And so it's just basically anything you can touch with your fingers is, is his kind of specialism and, so I'm an admirer of Herbie. Can you imagine just how it, how, it, how it is to keep changing throughout your career, right? Like he's done, like you said, there's been like eight different Herbies yeah. or whatever. Like, it, does it sound 
like scary? Does it take courage to like keep changing that way? Or I think for Herbie, it must be a kind of restless uh, creativity. He's very into the idea that there's no limits. You know, I know that he is a someone who's been a Buddhist for a very long time and someone who is endlessly optimistic and believes in the future, you know, future technology, the future of humanity. He's a UN ambassador. So I, I think he, he has a deeply held belief that things will get better and that music is an important thing which brings people together. And um, that's what you get from looking at his music, you know, lyrically and harmonically, this kind of belief in the the way that people can unite, you know, the work that he does in fusion has bringing together different cultures. You get a sense from his music that he really believes that the possibilities are endless, that we will see peace and love, that we will see joy return to humanity. You know, he has these grand perspectives. He's not a musician who's um, cynical or dejected or morose. He really believes that it's possible, it's there, it's tangible. We've touched it before, we can, we can touch it again. And that's what I really love about him. And especially, I guess, being, you know, I'm not 20 myself, but talking to someone who is from, you know, a few generations on from me and having seen so much political change and having seen so much difficulty and being in difficult times, I find it very inspiring to be around someone from that generation who is hopeful of the future and believes in the future and really touches on that in their music in terms of accessing technology, working with young people, um, crossing different cultures. I, I really see in the choices he makes, you can see he believes in the future and I think that's a really beautiful thing and really hopeful thing. And that's it for this episode of the EMP Anthology, the story of Herbie Hancock. This season of the podcast is hosted by Toure. It's executive produced and scripted by Andrew Winnestorfer. It's produced by Ben Patterson and Karen and Otis Ratchman. Thank you to Herbie Hancock and all the artists who checked in from their couches via Zoom for this podcast. And remember, listen to more Mwandishi.